do ask that tonight as uh, we are here, we are thankful that uh, we can just come together and Lord study a very encouraging, a very much of a um, portion of scripture that, that we can learn so much from. And Father, I pray that that would take place tonight. Lord, bless this time in the study of your word. I pray we would be attentive now for the next few moments as we go through the story of Gideon, who you call the mighty man of valor. We can learn, Lord, how you and I, how we can become mighty for you, Lord, as we yield ourselves to you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Of course, Judges chapter 6 is that story of Gideon raised up as a judge in Israel. It is action-packed. There's a lot of application to be made as we go through the next three chapters, looking at Gideon, how the Lord used him to free them from the oppression and the captivity and the bondage of the Midianites and the Amalekites. And so we begin to read in chapter 6 of Judges, Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel because the Midianites, the children of Israel, made for themselves the dens, the caves, and the strongholds which are in the mountains. And so it was whenever Israel had sown, the Midianites would come up, also the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. And verse 4, And then they would encamp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no substance for Israel, neither sheep nor ox nor donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents, coming in as numerous as locusts. Both they and their camels were without number, and they would enter the land to destroy it. So Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. And so once again we see this cycle of the children of Israel doing evil in the sight of the Lord. And once again, in, at this time, in the days of the judges, again, I want to remind you that chronologically, the days of the judges lasted about 350 years. And during this time, they would find themselves in bondage and captivity because they were turning to the false gods of the Canaanites. They were turning to the Baals and the Astaroths and worshiping them. They had forsaken the Lord. So what was taking place was exactly what the Lord said would, would happen, and that is you're going to find yourselves in bondage to your enemies. And all of a sudden here, once again, after a short time of rest, we saw that Deborah, the last judge that was raised up, had led the children of Israel, along with Barak, who led the troops against the Canaanites, and they had rest for about 40 years. But then the cycle again of doing evil in the sight of the Lord in this captivity comes to them. This bondage and being oppressed by their enemies takes place. And it takes place by the hand of the Midianites. Now, who are the Midianites? They probably, if you've been with us on Wednesday nights going through the Old Testament, it rings a bell with you. Now, you can go back to the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 25. It was after the death of Sarah. You see, Abraham, the one that this covenant was given to, to Abraham and his descendants, that Abraham, that your descendants are going to number the stars of heaven. And Abraham, your descendants are going to receive the promise that this land belongs to them. And I will give my covenant to them. And so we know that that covenant would go through his son Isaac and, and then through Isaac's son Jacob. And Abraham, he waited for years, of course, from Genesis chapter 12 and when he was 75 years old when the Lord called him and gave him that promise 
to the time that actually that he would have Isaac was 25 years. And sometimes we think that Abraham just had that son Isaac, and also we're familiar with the story before he had Isaac that it was Sarah that said, have a son with my maidservant Hagar because they were impatient and thinking that they needed to help God out, and Ishmael was born. And so Ishmael, as we know historically, was the father of the Arabs, and then it was Isaac who was the one that received the promise would go through him. But you see, as you go through the book of Genesis, Abraham had many other sons as well. And you see, in Genesis chapter 23, the death of Sarah, she died when I believe she was 127 years old is what the age is told to us. It is interesting, ladies, just a little interesting side note, that Sarah's age is the only age recorded for a woman in the entire Bible. Why that is so, I don't know. But I think mostly because because it encourages um, us in receiving the promise of God, even when we have to, to wait like Sarah did. She would be one that waited 25 years, and when she was 90 years old, she gave birth to Isaac. And then, of course, at the age of 127, it says there in Genesis chapter 23 that she passed away. Now, we do know that Abraham was 10 years older than Sarah, wasn't he? And so he's 137 years old. You go to Genesis chapter 25, and there is Abraham. He takes for himself another wife, and that wife was Keturah. And through Keturah, he would have several sons, and one of those sons was Midian. And so it was Abraham at that ripe age of over 137 years old had more sons, and some of those sons also, you go through the list of their names, not only Midian, but uh, uh, Sheba and Dedan, those are the, the descendants that are in that area of Saudi Arabia. And it says in Genesis chapter 25 that he sent those sons to the east away from Isaac, Isaac who would be in the land of Canaan, that land that would be given to them. And so the Midians are relatives of the children of Israel. And we also know, as you recall, in the book of, of Exodus, when Moses left Egypt, you recall that the first 40 years of his life, he was in Pharaoh's palace, and he was learning the wisdom and, and the knowledge of Egypt. He was next in line, probably, most historians believe this, to be the next Pharaoh. But he rejected that, and rather to suffer with his brethren, and so he would leave Pharaoh's palace. He would go out to be with his brethren. He thought at that time that he was going to be the deliverer of the children of Israel from bondage, but we know that he would kill an Egyptian taskmaster there in chapter 2 of the book of Exodus. And he was afraid that Pharaoh would find out and put him to death. So he took off, didn't he? And for the next 40 years, he's over in that area of Midian. And if you look at any of the ancient maps, it's over there in, in the very western part of Saudi Arabia on the other side of the Red Sea. Now, I know that as you look at the maps in the back of your Bible, that there you see that the, the wilderness wandering uh, exodus is mapped out for you, and it's there in the Sinai Peninsula. And that's uh, probably not accurate. It's, it's a study for another time. But it was, we know that Moses went over to Midian in that area, and he ended up marrying one of Jethro's daughters. Jethro was a princess, or prince of Midian. So he was in that area, and the children of Israel would spend time there. So the Midianites at this time are holding the children of Israel under bondage. It shouldn't be happening. 
Here is the, the Midianites down there in the area of Saudi Arabia coming up, and they're coming as numerous as locusts, as the scripture says here. Bring in their tents and, and bring in uh, their cattle to graze the land, and they're destroying the land as they go into it. They're there for seven years, and the children of Israel, every time that they raise a crop, they would come in and steal the crops. Along with the Mennonites were the Amalekites. Now, who are the Amalekites? Well, you can do a little tracing there. And the Amalekites were really descendants from Esau. You remember that Isaac had twins? And the oldest was Esau and then his twin brother Jacob. And Esau was carnal. He was fleshly. And the covenant did not go through Esau, but ended up going through Jacob. So the Amalekites are the ones that are descendants of Esau. And we know that the Amalekites have been ones and will continue to be it in the history of Israel. They, they were the ones that have been a real sore um, and a real problem to the children of Israel. When they were in their wilderness wandering, it was the Amalekites who would sneak up on the rear uh, of the group that is tracking through the wilderness and pick off the weak and, and uh, those who were feeble and lagging behind. The Amalekites were ones that Joshua did battle with down in the valley as Moses is up on the hill with his hands raised up during the battle. We know that the Amalekites also were ones that would be a problem to David later on after this. It was David, when he was running from Saul, went to the area of the Philistines, and that's where the Amalekites, kind of where they hung up, hang out, uh, was, or their stronghold was in that area uh, where the Philistines were, just south of there, south of Gaza. And there is David. He's in Ziglag with his mighty men. And the Amalekites came up when David was gone. He was gone with his mighty men out uh, away from their homes. The Amalekites came up, stole uh, their possessions, uh, took their wives and their children, burned down their homes, and they left. And so when David came back, it was David that came back with his mighty men. They saw their homes are gone, their families are gone, their possessions are gone, and David's mighty men were so discouraged and so upset about it, they were ready to stone David. It was like, David, we have been running with you and protecting you from Saul for all these years. And you've got to remember that David, he was running for Saul from Saul for about 12 to 13 years. That's a long time to run from somebody and hiding out in the wilderness. And they said, we're going to stone you, David. We've had enough. And it was David at that time that strengthened himself in the Lord. And the Lord spoke to him and said, guys, Put your swords on. We're going to go after our families and get them back, and we're going to go after the Amalekites. It was an Amalekite that ended up killing Saul. So the Amalekites have been ones that have been a real problem to the children of Israel. The Amalekites in the Old Testament, to me, is a picture of the flesh. The flesh that will sneak up on you when you're feeling weak and feeble and, you know, when you're least expected. It's when, you know what, it seems like that... that they will, the flesh coming and attacking you and attacking your family and things like that. And when that happens to you and to me, when we feel like the Amalekite is attacking you or me or families, it's important that you and I go to the Lord and we be strengthened in the Lord just as David was. So here are the Amalekites and the Midianites and they're coming. They have a new secret weapon here that we just read about and that is the camel. They got the camel that can 
travel long distances down in the desert. They don't need any water or much water at all. They can carry a heavy load. And so here they are with these camels, the Midianites, coming up, and they are taking over the land. And things are so bad at this time that here are the children of Israel. They have left their homes, and they have left their villages, and they have headed to the hills. And they're finding themselves tucked away in dens and in caves and in the strongholds which are in the mountains. That's how bad things are. Matter of fact, it's so bad that it says in verse 6 that they were greatly impoverished because of the Midianites. They were greatly impoverished really because of their sin, because they did evil in the sight of the Lord. And I hope that we understand this, that the Bible is so true. And if there's one thing that the Lord keeps pressing to us, Week after week, as we're going through the scriptures, it doesn't matter if it's in the New Testament or in the Old Testament. I think the Old Testament illustrates it to a great degree in some ways. But if we are ones that we're going to do what is right in our own eyes and we're going to go the way of the world or get involved in the things of the world or the pleasures of the world, you are going to find yourself being greatly impoverished spiritually. And you will find yourself in that condition to where it seems like you're in bondage to something. You're in captivity and oppressed by something. Because the world, or Satan, the flesh, is a very terrible, terrible taskmaster. And the Lord wanted to bless them. This shouldn't be happening here. The Amalekites, the Midianites, coming in and taking their land and raping the land, destroying the land, so bad that the homes that they have built and the cities that they have conquered, not that long before this, that all of a sudden they have to leave them and hide out in the hills and the caves and in the dens. So that's what takes place here in, in these seven years as they're under the hands of the Midianites. We continue to read in verse 7, It came to pass when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord because of the Midianites, that the Lord sent a prophet to the children of Israel who said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage. And I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. Also I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. And so this prophet is raised up. God's still working. God's still showing his mercy and his grace to the children of Israel. And this prophet is speaking forth the words of the Lord. He, he's telling them what the Lord has already told their fathers, that I brought you out of Egypt, I've given you this land, and I want to bless you, but you have not obeyed my voice. That was the covenant that the Lord had made with the children of Israel, didn't he? We've seen it repeated over and over again as we've gone through those books of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and the book of Joshua. But yet they ignored that. And God's word comes to pass and comes true in his word given to us when he says that you're going to experience captivity and bondage if you're involved in sin. That is going to happen to you and to me. You see, whatever a man sows, so shall he reap. And if he reaps or sows unto the, unto the flesh, of the flesh he's going to sow corruption. If he sows to the spirit of the spirit, he's going to reap into everlasting life. None of us are exempt from that that Galatians tells us. None of us are exempt from that. And whatever it is that a man sows, so shall he reap. That is true for every single one of us. Of the flesh, corruption. Of the spirit, good things unto everlasting life. And if we ever get to the point of not me, or I'm exempt from that, 
we're going to learn eventually that God's word is going to come true for us. And here is this prophet that is speaking forth God's word. Now, a prophet again, and we are going to begin to see more prophets come on a scene in the history of the children of Israel, that a prophet is going to foretell God's word or foretell God's word. But whatever a prophet speaks, as we saw in the book of Deuteronomy, that it's going to be 100% accurate. It's going to be according to Scripture. It's going to be according to the Word of God. Or if it's in a foretelling kind of predictive sense, then it must come to pass. And if it does not come to pass, God didn't make a mistake. All right? It is a false prophet that is on the scene. And I mention that because in the day in which we are living in, and we're going to talk more about it next time when uh, we pick up 1 Corinthians chapter 12. This Sunday for the 4th of July, we're going to be in John chapter 8. I'm going to take a little detour, and we're going to talk about what it really means to have freedom, as we'll be in John chapter 8 on the 4th of July. But then we're going to continue in our study of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 as we're dealing with the spiritual gifts and the gift of prophecy. And anybody that comes along who claims to be speaking on behalf of the Lord or thus saith the Lord has to be 100% accurate. It has to line up with God's word. And of course, we're going to see in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 that we are instructed that it is the church that is to judge that prophecy that is coming forth. And then also, if it's in a foretelling kind of way, predictive sense, then it needs to be 100% accurate. And I mention that because there's a lot of thus save the Lord that's going on in the church today. And there are those who are uttering things that are not coming to pass, that are not according to God's word. And, and if that is the case, then they're not speaking on behalf of God. That they're a false prophet. And you and I need to understand that because Jesus said that in the last days there's going to be many false prophets that are going to come on the scene. So when Jesus says in the last days there's going to be many, not a few, that means there's going to be many. So you and I need to be discerning and we need to be wise and that's why it's important that we be ones that we are uh, grounded in God's word and we know truth. So here is this prophet that says, you know what, I gave you this land. I brought you out of Egypt. Now we saw in chapter 2 of Judges that it was that generation that rose up after Joshua that didn't know the Lord or forgot the works of the Lord. And whenever that we get to that point of, you know, as a nation, a people, and I believe that our nation is going through somewhat of that, where we're forgetting the Lord and the works of the Lord. The great things that the Lord has done in blessing this nation, in blessing the United States of America. And I pray that there would be true revival in going back and recognizing our need for God and our need and the challenges that face us and, and to humble ourselves and to truly repent and to remember the works of God, what he has done for us. So here is this prophet that is addressing them once again. And now we're introduced to Gideon as we read in verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which is, was in Oprah, which belonged to Joash the uh, Abba Ezrite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. So here's a Gideon, Gideon and Abba Ezrite. That's a clan from the tribe of Manasseh. He's hiding from the Midianites. He's down at the west wine press and he's threshing wheat. Now, what they would do at harvest time is 
of course, with the Midianites coming in with their camels, they would come and swoop in and take away the harvest, destroy the land. And so he's hiding from them. And usually when it was harvest time, when they were harvesting wheat or barley or any of the grains, that they had a threshing floor that would be out in the open, usually up on a higher place to where there would be a breeze. And they'd take the fork and they would throw the grain up uh, where they harvested up in the air and they kept doing that. And the grain would separate from that chaff that was dried out and the grain being heavier would fall and then the chaff would kind of fall and they'd sweep away the chaff and they would burn the chaff. And so you could see where that was being done with the burning of the chaff and out in the open and, and all of this. Here is Gideon, he's hiding from the Midianites. Because he knows that if he's out there in the open, that here comes the Midianites with their fast camels, and they're going to take the grain, and they're going to, you know, uh, do away with the land and destroy the land. So he's wanting to protect and have something to eat here. So he's in a sunken place where a wine press is, and he's hiding, and he's there, and and uh, he's threshing this wheat, and uh, he he's there uh, in a place that. Um, is protected from being seen from the Midianites. In verse 12, Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. <laughs> I love that. Here's Gideon with his tail between his legs, hiding, you know, threshing wheat at the wine press, hiding from the Midianites. And here's the Lord comes to him. I believe that this is a Christophany as the Lord came to him. Because we're going to see it very clearly in, in the next few verses. As the Lord says, Gideon, I'm going to use you. I'm going to, to deliver the children of Israel into your hands. The Lord is speaking to him. A Christophany, appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament before the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ there in the babe of Bethlehem. And so here is this Christophany. And the Lord speaking to him and says that the Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. And it's going to be an interesting response that Gideon says in verse 13. He says, My Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. I find this response to be a, a little bit interesting, don't you? Here is Gideon being told he's a mighty man of valor, and Gideon saying, Lord, if you're really with us, why has all of this happened? Why has all of this happened? Now, you and I, we can look back at the book of Joshua and the book of Deuteronomy, and we can say, well, the reason is Gideon is because the children of Israel have broken a covenant that God made with them. They've forsaken him and gone after the gods of the Canaanites, and, and now you find yourself in bondage just as you know, God said would happen. You and I, we can see that, but Gideon doesn't. He doesn't quite understand. And, and he says, Lord, you brought us out of Egypt, but why have you forsaken us? It wasn't that the Lord forsaken them. They forsook the Lord, didn't they? And verse 14, the Lord turned to him and said, Go into might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? And so we see this is clearly the Lord that's speaking to him. And so he said to him in verse 15, O oh my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. So the Lord comes along. And isn't it interesting in the response of the Lord that here is Gideon saying, Why? Why has this happened? Why has this happened? 
And the Lord doesn't tell him why. He tells him what? And this, I think, speaks to me a lot and really has spoken to me a lot even in the last couple months. Because there are times in our lives where, oh, we go through difficulties and we can go through problems and we can go through, you know, challenges in our lives. And we can say, Lord, why is this happening? And I have learned something. But sometimes the Lord doesn't always give me the answer why, but he tells me what. And he says, you know what? You're a mighty man of valor, Gideon. And I want to use you. And I'm going to use you in a miraculous way, in a very powerful way. i got work for you to do. And sometimes in the challenges and the difficulties that I do face, I can understand some of the whys. I can understand, you know, what's taken place spiritually at certain times, but other times I don't know. And as a pastor, sometimes people say, why is this happening to me, or why am I going through this, or the challenges, or the difficulties that I'm facing. I don't have all the answers, but I do know what. You see, in those times where I can get discouraged, in those times where I think, Lord, do you really want to use me? Lord, you can't be telling me that I'm a mighty man of valor because I feel so weak, feel very feeble. My faith seems to be faltering. And Lord, why? And he says to me, you know what? It's not why, it's what. And you see, I've learned, and I continue to learn, to get my eyes on him and to understand that the eyes of the Lord go through to and through throughout the whole world to show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal towards him. And he says, I have things for you to do, Jeff. I'm not done with you yet. You just keep coming to me day by day. And you see, if I keep focused and get all caught up on the why, and that's it, then you see, that's when you will find yourself being held up at the wine press day after day. Just being down and discouraged. And know this, precious people, the Lord comes to you and says, you're a mighty man of valor, a mighty woman of valor. I want to use you. And I'm not through with you. And what's the key for us during those times as we're going through the whys? And Lord, I may not understand the why, but it's the what. I know that you want to continue to do work because, Lord, you promised, you promised that you will never leave me or forsake me. You know, we all go through those times and those seasons where we can get down. Or perhaps spiritually we do struggle a bit. Or our faith maybe falters a little bit. We all go through those seasons where we wonder, Lord, are you really using me in the way that I should be used? I know I go through those times. You know, folks, sometimes I think I'm the worst pastor in the world, that I'm really doing you guys no good. And Lord, how can you use somebody like me? I probably bore the people to death. They're not interested. You know, all these things that I can go through, the doubts and stuff. And, and the Lord comes back and he says, you know, it's true, Jeff that I do choose the foolish and weak things of the world, to confound the wise, to confound the, the strong, and the things that are not, to bring the not to things that are, that no man can glory in his presence. And Jeff, I want to use you to bring glory to me. And I'm going to use you in a way that I have in my will and my plan for you. You just trust in me. 
There's a real key in that, and that is as we continue on, when you find yourself not only, not just focusing on the why, because sometimes we don't understand the why, but the what is that the Lord wants to continue working on your behalf. But what's important for us to do as we go in verse 17 is he says, Gideon, then he said to him, if now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who talk with me. And do not depart from here, I pray, until I come to you and bring out my offering and set it before you. And he said, I will wait until you come back. So Gideon went in and prepared a young goat and unleavened bread from an ephah flour. To me he put in a basket, and he put the broth in a pot, and he brought them out to him under the terapeuth tree and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay them on this rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. And then the angel of the Lord put out the end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread. And the fire rose out of the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. And the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight. Now Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. So Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. And then the Lord said to him, Peace be with you. Do not fear you shall not die. So Gideon, in verse 24, built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace, and to this day still an Oprah of the Abbey Ezrites. What does he do here? What he does is, is he asks for a sign. He asks for a sign because his faith is weak. He's thinking, you're calling me mighty man of valor. Why is this happening? Gideon, I'm going to use you. And so Gideon wants a sign from the angel Lord. So he prepares a burnt offering, that is the goat, a peace offering, the unleavened bread, and a drink offering, the broth. And that took a lot of work for him to do. And he presents it before the Lord, and then the Lord touches it with the end of his staff, and it all ignites. And it was Gideon that perceived that, you know what, I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. And the Lord said, peace be with you. And he built that altar, and as he named that altar, he called it the Lord's Peace, and it, to this day it was still in Oprah there. A very important thing for you and for me to remember, that in those times where we feel down and discouraged, or weak or feeble, or whatever it might be, that we are to bring that offering to the Lord. You see, remember back in the book of Leviticus, the burnt offering is just that offering of, Lord, I surrender myself completely to you. Uh, it was an offering, a free will offering of worship to the Lord as that animal was completely consumed, the burnt offering. And it is, Lord, I surrender myself completely to you. The peace offering was an offering of fellowship, that we have peace with God. And, and then the drink offering was one, again, of a commitment to the calling that God has given to us, as it is Paul that would write right before his death, saying, I've already been poured out as a drink offering unto the Lord. So, Timothy, my departure's at hand. And I fought the good fight. I finished my race. I've kept the faith. What's important for you and I in those times is, again, not to be held out at the wine press. But once again, go to the Lord, just as David did in those times where the Amalekites came up against him. And you offer yourself to the Lord and saying, Lord, you know what? Here I am. And I trust you with my salvation and forgiveness of sin. I know I can trust you with my life. And I just want to be devoted to you. I know that I have peace with you. 
I want that closeness and that fellowship with you. And I just want to be committed to you. And I know that as long as I am there, in those times where I doubt, those times where I feel like I'm a failure, where, Lord, can you really use me? I know that it's important for me at those times and at all times. But Lord, I'm going to stay devoted to you. And I'm going to trust in you. And I want to stay close to you. You know, that's not a bad place to be. And even when we go through those times that, that we say, you know what, I really want to spend that time with you, Lord, in that closeness. Here, here's my peace offering. And I want to continue to be devoted to you. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. You know, it's kind of been interesting over the last couple of months with the death of my dad and, and you know, just things can get real busy. And then, you know, I, I look at the last month and I, I see the attendance being down in the summertime and giving is down and all of this. And I think, Lord, what is going on? Lord, am I in the place that I need to be? Am I really ministering to people in the way that I should be? And that's not a bad place for your pastor to be. To say, Lord, I want to make sure that I'm staying close to you and committed to you. I want to be that drink offering. I want to, to be one that close, intimate fellowship with you and that peace offering. That, Lord, I want to just be that burnt offering to you day after day. And that's what I think he wants to do with all of us. And I know that as I am, that he's going to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. And I don't know exactly what he's going to do or how he's going to do it, but I take it day by day with him. And I am so thankful that I have peace with God. And you see, when we do those things, you go to him in devotion. When that peace offering, intimate fellowship with him, just spending time with him and staying committed to him in your life and how you serve him and how you walk with him, you will be altered. And here is Gideon that he built an altar because he had seen the Lord face to face and he knew that the peace of the Lord was with him. So there he is in Oprah. Oprah, by the way, means dusty for you Oprah fans. So verse 25. Now it came to pass, I just thought you'd be interested, the same night that the Lord said to him, take your father's young bull and a second bull of seven years old and tear down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the wooden image that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of this rock in proper arrangement and take the second bull and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood and the image which you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men from among his servants and did as the Lord had said to him. But because he feared his father's household and the men of the city too much to do it by day, he did it by night. So consistent with Gideon, he did it, but he did it by night. But here's an important lesson in application for you and for me. Gideon, before you're going to save the nation, you need to deal with things in your own home and with your own family. See, Gideon's father, he was one that that he had built an altar to Baal. And, and so he was told that you are to cut down that altar and the, and the wooden images that was the image, um, the wooden images, the wooden groves that they have whenever that you see that in the Old Testament. And speaking of those places of worship where they worship Astaroth, which was the, the god of sexuality and fertility. And, and that's where all kinds of, of 
of sexual immorality was practiced and stuff. He says you need to tear that down and the altar bail. You need to tear those downs before you're going to have victory in the spirit. You need to deal with what's going on in your own household. And Gideon, fearing his father, would go and do it by night. But he did it. And the Lord would honor that. You see, before you and I can really engage in the things that God wants us to do, don't lose the priority that it begins at home. It begins with us. It begins at home. And I know that I can't do the ministry here unless things are good at home and right at home and I'm ministering in the way that I'm supposed to be to my wife and to my kids. Ministering to my family. See, I don't want to ever forget the ministry to my family. And so Gideon, you need to deal with what's going on with, with your father and put a second bull, a young bull, and a second bull of seven years old. Kind of interesting because how long has this oppression been going on? For seven years. And it's a wonderful story that we're reading here because we will have victory spiritually when we keep the priority in our lives, the ministry to our family, for those of you who desire to be used of the Lord, but also in our own lives personally, make sure that you tear down any altars that are sitting on the throne of your heart. Any bales or anything else that is there. And we live in a day and age where those altars can be set up so quickly and really captivate and grab our hearts so easily. And so we need to have our hearts presented before the Lord. And honestly present our hearts to the Lord and saying, Lord, honestly, what motivates me? What is the priority of my life? What is my devotion to? Is it you or is there some bale, some altar that is built that is really sitting on the throne of my heart? And to honestly be able to say, Lord, that you are the one that I want sitting on the throne of my heart in my life. It doesn't mean that you can't enjoy doing things in life or different activities. You know, I was reading about one of the kings in my devotions uh, a couple months ago, and it struck me for the first time. And one of these kings, his name escapes me. I'll dig it up and find it for you if you'd like to know. Or you can do your own study and find out. But it talked about one little sentence that he had a garden. And this king liked a garden. And there are things that we enjoy doing, whether it's gardening, and I know Pastor Chuck used to like working on, uh, on cars once in a while. We have those activities that we enjoy, don't we? But truly, it's the Lord, the devotion and the priority that is in your heart, that sits on the throne of your heart. And I pray that takes place individually, and then keeping priority straight, making sure before you're used of the Lord, that you're ministering to your family, whatever that might mean for you, whatever state you find yourself in. And don't forget about them. I don't want to leave my family behind as I minister to others. And then you're going to see victory in God using you as you go out. And so we see the response of the people of the city. This is how bad the this, this situation is in verse 28. When the men of the city rose early in the morning, there was the altar of Baal torn down, and the wooden image that was beside it was cut down, and the second bowl was being offered on the altar which had been built. So they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And when they had inquired and asked, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. And then the men of the city said to Joash, Bring out your son, that he may die, because he has torn down the altar of Baal, because he has cut down the wooden image that was beside it. So this is how far the nation had fallen into idol worship. 
This is why Gideon feared, because he knew that the men would come out and they're asking for his head. They, they want to kill Gideon. Who has done this thing? Gideon has. We'll bring him out and he's going to die. You know what? Today, and we need to be reminded of this, I believe it takes real courage, even in the nation in which we live in, which is one of the freest nations on earth. But yet, today it takes great courage to stand for truth and to stand for righteousness and to stand for the Lord. And I believe it's going to take more courage to do that. And understand that as you do that, the men of the city, that is the people and the lives around this, they are going to come against you. They may come down on you. And they're going to do everything that they can to discourage you. They're going to try to discredit you, whatever it might be. They may not kill you, but they're going to try to kill your reputation. And they're going to try to kill your, your faith and discourage you and all of this. And that's one of the things I tell the young people and we need to be reminded of is the world does not applaud us when we come to Christ and stand for righteousness. The world comes against us. And Jesus said the world will hate you because it first hated me. And sometimes the mindset and mentality is that being a Christian is something to be cool. You know, if you want to be cool, be cool. But here's the thing. The bottom line is the world's going to come against you. And people are going to come against you when you stand for truth and righteousness and for the Lord. And it's going to, I believe, get even more difficult as we get closer to return to the Lord. I personally, and listen, I'm just a simple Bible teacher. But what Paul wrote to Timothy, that in the last days are going to be perilous times. And I believe that we are headed for some dark times. I really do. That's my own personal opinion. The scripture says that in the last days it's going to be perilous. And I believe that even what we are going to see, that it's going to be more difficult to stand for truth. And that's why we need to pray for each other. That's why we need to continue to grow in God's word. And you see, in those times as I go to the Lord and I think, Lord, do we need to be doing anything different? I know this, that the priority needs to be that we need to continue in the Word of God and praying for each other and just depending on the Holy Spirit to work in our lives. That's what we need to be doing. Not the programs and everything else that can be such a distraction because the days are going to be dark. They're going to be dark. You know, I was up and, you know, did a little overnight camp out with, with the kids. And any of you that have been up in the hills, isn't it kind of sad to see all the dead timber that's up there? It really is sad to see that. Now, the mountain pine beetles. There's been places where I've taken the kids five years ago that was all green and it's all brown now. And as far as the eye can see throughout the forest of Colorado, I mean, even coming down from Laramie, down 287, in, in that pretty area as you go by um, Virginia Hills or um, Virginia Dale is what it is. And as you come into Livermore, the beautiful ponderosa pines, a lot of them are dead now because of the mountain pine beetle. What was interesting is today I heard one of the senators talking about, well, I believe that the Forest Service needs to do more in stopping the spread of pine beetle and also stopping forest fires. And I'm thinking, that's the wrong questions to be asking. It's a little bit too late to stop the pine beetle. It's a little bit too late. And I know that the conditions are going to be right, that one of these times is going to go up. 
It's going to go up. So the questions ought to be, what are we going to do when that happens? And it may be later this summer, it may be next year, it may be two years, but there's a lot of dead trees there. And it's going to burn. So the question needs to be, the mountain pine beetles devastated these forests. What are we going to do when it starts to burn? You see, that's what happened in Yellowstone in 1988. The mountain pine beetle, I don't know if you guys knew that, went through Yellowstone, and what happened, the conditions were right, where a million acres burned in Yellowstone that summer. And then all of a sudden, a snowstorm came, and the first week of September was over with. Sometimes the church, I think, asked the wrong questions. And what we need to be saying is, what are we going to do when the times do get dark, if the Lord doesn't come back? And we see some of those dark times. If the Lord tarries, I believe that the Lord's going to come back before the tribulation period. But I believe that as we get closer to that time, that it's going to get more difficult for you and I to stand for truth. And we need to be ones that are devoted to the Lord, determined in their hearts, being ones that are continually being that burnt offering to the Lord, fellowship offering, and drink offering to Him. What are we going to do if times do get tough? That's the questions that we need to ask. Because the storm clouds are gathering. One of these times there's going to be a lightning bolt that's going to hit and the conditions are going to be right. And we're going to see those fires go through those trees. When it's going to happen, I don't know, but it is going to happen. We know that there are loved ones that don't know the Lord, that when the Lord comes back for us, that there's going to be a time of terrible tribulation that will take place, that they're going to go through if the Lord comes back in our lifetime. And so we need to be praying for them. We need to be praying for this community. And we need to be standing for the truth and giving truth to others. That's what my prayer is. So here is Gideon. He does this. He musters enough courage from the Lord to do that. And so as we continue on in verse 31, Joah said to all who stood against him, Why would you plead for Baal? Why would you save him? Let the one who would plead for him be put to death by mourning. If he is a god, let him plead for himself, because this altar has been torn down. And so what we see here is, is Gideon's father says, If Baal is God, let him take care of himself. He can take care of himself. Why do you have to go after him? I think that Gideon's father is being convicted here. He's being challenged. You see, there are those who are going to come against you, but as you do stand for the Lord, I believe there are also going to be those who are going to be challenged and convicted by that. And it's going to be a wonderful witness as you walk in that obedience and they see that commitment and conviction and love that devotion that you have for the Lord. So we see that verse 32, Therefore in that day he called him Jerubbabel, saying, Let Baal plead against him, because he has torn down this, his altar. Then all the Midianites and the Amalekites, the peoples of the east, gathered together, and they crossed over and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and he blew the trumpet, and the Abbey Ezrites gathered behind him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, and also gathered behind him. He also sent messengers to Asher, Zebulon, and Naphtali, and they came up to meet them. And so we're going to see Gideon's army being called in chapter 7. A wonderful, wonderful chapter we'll get to next time. But as we finish here, chapter 6 tonight. So Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, Look, I shall put a fleece of wool 
on the threshing floor, if there is dew on the fleece only, and it is dry in all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so, then he rose early the next morning, and he squeezed the fleece together. He wrung the dew out of the fleece, a bowl full of water. Verse 39, And Gideon said to God, Do not be angry with me, but let me speak just once more. Let me test, I pray, just once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the fleece, but on all ground let there be dew. And God did so that night. It was dry on the fleece only, but there was dew on all the ground. Now you've heard people say, I'm going to put a fleece out for God. This is where they get this from. A couple things to remember. When somebody says, I need you know, to know the direction to go, so I'm going to put a fleece out for God. Gideon was not putting out this fleece to get direction from God. He's already received a calling and confirmation, hasn't he? He's received confirmation by the Lord burning the sacrifice that he brought to him by saving him from, you know, those men who wanted to come out and kill him. He's already received all that. Gideon's faith here is weak once again. And the reason that I like this story, because Gideon is oftentimes, you know, I look at him and I think that's me. Because I know that God has given me calling. I know that he's brought confirmation. But a lot of times I find myself where I'm still faltering. And, and, and Lord, really, have you called me, you know? And do you want me to do this? Haven't I told you? And so I think out of the mercy and the grace of God that he honored Gideon in this, in this fleece. So when you hear somebody say, you know, I'm going to put out a fleece, you know what, this was put out after Gideon had already received the calling and confirmation of the Lord and what to do. The Lord is just building up his strength, and that brings good news to me because I know that in the honesty of my heart, when I come, just as that man did to Jesus, and said, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Remember the story in Matthew? After Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration came down, his son is demon-possessed, and he's throwing himself in the fire and trying to drown himself in the water and all of this, and the disciples were trying to cast the demon out, and they couldn't. And Jesus rebuked the disciples, and then he talked to the Father, and he says, Do you believe that I can do this for your son? And he says, I believe, but help my unbelief. That's all the Lord wanted him to do, is to throw himself in the honesty of his weaknesses on the Lord and his compassion. And why I love this story so much is I can do the same thing. Oh, Lord, I know you've given me a calling. Lord, you confirmed that. But, Lord, I need to be encouraged and built up. There's a fleece that, that I have. And the Lord will, at times, when I need it, when I really need it, will bring that word of encouragement. Or something will take place where I say, Lord, you truly are with me. You are using me. You are blessing. And you haven't forsaken me. And I'm so thankful for those times. And I know that you are as well. The Lord is so good. Here is Gideon, a man who is the least of the least of the least, I am the least in my family. My clan is the least in the tribe. My tribe is the least of the tribes of Israel. And yet God looks at him because the eyes of the Lord do go to and fro across the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal towards him. Tonight, as we just pray for a few minutes,
Let that heart be given to the Lord and saying, Lord, here I am. In an honesty of what's going on, say, Lord, I throw myself on you. I don't want any altars of Baal. I find myself being weak at times, and I just want to be devoted to you. And Lord, just build me up. And Lord, encourage me. And you know what you'll find? That as you do again, as I mentioned to you, build that altar. And I pray that all of us, you just have a place where you can get away with the Lord. That you will be altered as he speaks to you in that still small voice. And has compassion on his children in building them up and strengthening them. And saying, you know what? You're my child and I want to do great things. I want to bless you. You just trust in me and take it day by day. Father, we thank you that we can do that. And thank you that we can, Lord, just as Gideon was one that, as you saw him, not in his present state, but in his potential, of being a mighty man of valor, that you say that to us. Lord, we know that it also comes by being devoted to you. And Lord, knowing that you are our peace, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins. And then as we devote ourselves to you, we have the peace of God. So we don't have to be anxious, as Philippians tells us, but through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving to let our requests be known to you. And the peace of God that passes understanding will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Lord, that we would be ones knowing that as we just in our own lives, tear down those altars. Anything that is interfering, that is priority over our devotion and priority and love for you. Lord, I pray that right now that we would just confess it. Whatever that might be, maybe a pleasure of the world, maybe sin, maybe just busyness. Maybe just being so wrapped up into something. And Lord, we know that you've given us lives and things to do, and we enjoy things. But I pray that tonight, if we look and say, Lord, I have been distracted. And there have been some other things that have really captivated and grabbed my heart, that we would let it go and once again open our hearts to you, that you truly sit on the throne of our hearts. That, Lord, we know that we can just confess that because you're compassionate and good. And that's your desire as you bring conviction to us. That, Lord, that we would be ones that know that you'll never leave us or forsake us. And in those times where we feel feeble and weak, that, Lord, that you say to us that I am with you and I want to use you and work and show myself strong on your behalf. That, Lord, in those times where we just need to be encouraged and strengthened by you, just as David did when the Amalekites came against him, just as Gideon, and it seems like we struggle with the flesh. The enemy is always trying to come against us and the world work against us. That, Lord, that we can know that in you is our refuge and our strength. And you, Lord, is our wisdom. And that you desire to direct us. We thank you for your word. 
We thank you for the Holy Spirit that dwells in us. And Lord, in a day and age where it's going to get more difficult to stand for you in truth, that we would be strong and of good courage, just as you told Joshua. Lord, that we would take courage in the fact, knowing that we don't have to fear the other gods of the world, but you are the true and the living God. And that you would give us that courage that we need to stand against those who come against us, try to get us to compromise, even if it's family. That, Lord, that as we do stand, that there will be those that would be convicted and challenged by that. They would see the reality of Jesus Christ, that witness that radiates from us, that light. Father, I do pray for this church, Calvary Chapel, that, Lord, as we see that in the days in which we're living, that it's not getting brighter and rosier, but, but Lord, that the days will be perilous, as your word says it will be, that we would keep our eyes looking to you, that, Lord, that we would be the wise and faithful servant that looks for the Master's return, because I believe you can come back at any time. And, Lord, in each and every day that we live in this world that comes against us, I pray that you would just strengthen us. And, Lord, use us. And just as Gideon's going to use 300 men for a great victory that you would use this church to do great things in the spirit, Lord. Great things after the kingdom of God for your glory, Lord. And that individually we would be ones that we, again, would know that you look at us as mighty men and women as we're devoted to you. Bless your people, Lord. Bless this holiday. Those who are traveling and out, that you keep them safe. And Lord, I pray that, um, that for this nation, and truly that we would turn back to you. We pray for our leaders. We pray for a president. We're told to pray for a president. Lord, that somehow you would get a hold of his heart and there would be a turning to you and our leaders in the nation and in the state and in our community, that there truly be a revival. And Lord, a turning to you and a humbling ourselves and calling upon your name. And Lord, that it would start in the church. It would start in our own lives. And Lord, that we would be ones that we battle with through prayer and through truth and through the love of Jesus Christ. And we would understand what true freedom is about. And that is Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. But we lift up this nation that you have blessed. Pray that you would move. Lord, I do pray that you would, again, take us all home safely tonight. Lord, bless tomorrow as we go to work and whatever it is that's on the agenda that we would start our day early with you and our devotion to you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.